Welcome to Private Market Talks, where we talk with industry leaders and hear their strategies and stories about the fast-growing private capital industry. I'm Peter Antoshik, and I'm excited by my guest this week. Brent Humphreys is the president and founding member of AB Private Credit Investors, the middle market direct lending platform of Alliance Bernstein. Brent joined AB in 2014. Today, under his leadership, the business now has more than $14.5 billion of capital under management and is one of the leading middle market direct lenders with a particular focus on software and SaaS companies with reoccurring revenue, fiber and related sectors, and healthcare. In this episode, Brent joins me from his hometown of Austin, Texas, and talks about why private credit is well positioned for continued growth, how middle market software and SaaS companies are navigating economic headwinds, and how he created a unique platform at AB Credit to drive alpha. And now, my conversation with Brent Humphreys. Brent, thanks for joining me on Private Market Talks. To get us started, maybe you could just describe what you're doing at AB to give our listeners a sense of your market, your industry, the types, et cetera. Sure. First, thank you for having me and appreciate you putting this on uh, for our industry and those that uh, that are, are interested in learning more about private credit, private equity, et cetera. So AB Private Credit Investors is the middle market direct lending platform of Alliance Bernstein. The way I think about our business is, you know, we effectively are providing loans that are generally um, to companies that are private equity backed that banks tend not to make anymore, primarily due to regulatory reasons. So we think of our business as poor middle market, which we will define as probably 250 million to a billion plus of enterprise value, directly originated, meaning we're not acquiring loans that are sold and packaged and sold from an investment bank and privately negotiated. So we're negotiating the terms directly. We have a $15 billion plus platform. My founding team members and I have been doing this together dating back to 2008 at Barclays Private Credit Partners, which was the predecessor vehicle, predecessor business before we launched Alliance Bernstein Private Credit Investors in spring of 2014. And so we've had a really good run. And again, focus on what I'd characterize as core middle market and, and cover core middle market sponsors. That's great. And can you describe, again, just to orient our, our listeners, the, the industries that you tend to focus on and how you structure the deals? We do go to market and, and one of our differentiations is deep, deep sector expertise. And, and when we talk about sector expertise, we're talking about teams that have invested in specific sectors for 10, 15 plus years and, you know, multiple team members, not one or two uh, team members with that expertise. You know, some of the sectors where we are most prolific and, and most well-known include software, in, in particular SaaS software, digital infrastructure, which we would define as cell towers, data centers, managed services, and, and all of the fiber as well, and all of the all of the services and uh, uh, sectors around that industry. Healthcare, we do a lot in healthcare services. We do healthcare IT as well, but we think of that as part of our software platform. And then, you know, we also have very strong expertise in what I'd characterize as multi-site QSR, quick serve restaurants, so non-cyclical type plays, consumer discretionary, think KFCs, Burger Kings, et cetera. And, you know, but I think importantly, you know, we didn't just kind of pick those industries because they're sizable or because of their growth profiles, et cetera. We, when we initially started, we, we 
took a step back and asked ourselves, what characteristics do we think make really strong credit investments? And, and you know, some of those credit the characteristics include contractual recurring revenues, entrenched, repeatable, reoccurring revenue streams, businesses that while they may not be recurring revenue business models, they may be very, very predictable revenues. So some of the things in the healthcare and again, that QSR restaurant sector. So it was that focus on those characteristics that led us to those sectors, not the other way around. Interesting. And how are you structuring these loans? Uh, are they first lien, second lien? You know, can you describe you know your 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 structure? Seventy five percent of what we do would fall in that unit tranche product. Another twenty percent would probably be characterized as traditional first lien. So a little bit yeah. lower levered, lower risk, and only about five percent would really be in the junior um, uh, debt category. Again, for our the sake of our listeners, you know the idea of a unit tranche being a single document, combining all those various tranches into a, a single document creates a level of efficiencies that you don't see in, in a multiple document uh, documented deal. Yeah, I, I think from a, a private equity buyer's perspective, for example, there's got to be a really good reason, and in some cases there are. Uh, but there's got to be a really good reason to want to work with two different lenders to deal with intercreditor issues, to put in place the bifurcated structure, the first lien, second lien, first lien, mes type structure. If they can avoid it, they probably would prefer it. And that's why the Unitron has become so popular. Historically, one of the concerns about the Unitron's product was whether or not it was scalable and whether or not you could go from a $100 million private solution to scale up to half a billion, maybe even a billion dollars. And I think as the private credit industry has continued to evolve and continued to grow, those concerns have really lessened considerably. And, and, and the Unitron product has proven that it is very scalable and very flexible. Yeah, I think you're seeing a billion, billion and a half dollar unit tranches now um, where you would you would very rarely, if ever, see that those size of unit tranches. This has been pretty much mainstreamed in the private credit market. There's been tremendous market share that's been taken from the banks, and that's what I would characterize as a disintermediation version 1.0. Well, we're in the midst of disintermediation version 2.0, and you alluded to it when you talked about the billion, billion and a half dollar unit tranche mm -hmm. offerings where... Today, direct lending is really taking share from the investment banks. And there's a variety of reasons for that, but there's a huge growth opportunity in front of the direct lending marketplace that's pretty massive. And, um, and I think, again, provides a lot of white space and a lot of runway for the industry to grow. Certainly, it's, it's a question of, of how sustainable that is, that particular aspect of the industry, because the syndicated market is largely inaccessible right now, but that's not going to be the case forever. That will that will come back. And it's a great opportunity, present opportunity for private credit market to grab market share of the existing deals. But as the market evolves, I wonder how that's going to play out as there is a as there is increased competition among the syndicated and the yeah. non-syndicated uh, club deals. In general, I mentioned that we focus on core middle market. In general, we we tend to be most competitive and tend to focus on, you know, kind of the par part of the market where the syndicated credit opportunity isn't the direct competing alternative. And I think our philosophy is, is once you do start competing against a syndicated alternative, terms will ultimately get marginalized to some extent in, 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 in certain markets. Today, you're right. The, the, the syndicated market is in a little bit of dislocation. And so there's an opportunity. Having said that, I do think there's also going to be a sustained 
place for private credit in those larger transactions. It's yeah. where private you know, credit is, is good at competing against a broadly syndicated market. I want to switch gears for a little bit. The market has changed. We've had 10 years of high growth, low interest rates, and everyone knows the story it is today. I'm kind of curious because there's, I don't think there's a lot of data out there, but there's some in terms of how resilient are you finding your middle market companies in this environment? And I think it's particularly interesting to hear from you because you're focused on, as you said, SaaS, digital infrastructure, reoccurring revenue. And, and some of those industries, I think, have really, at least in the public markets, shown some real stress. And so I'm kind of curious what you're seeing in your middle market investments. So let's take software for a moment. You know, why do we like software business or SaaS software business? It's because of this highly entrenched install base, which typically has, you know, renewal rates, you know, 90% to maybe 100% when you when you consider upgrades, 100% plus in terms of, of renewal rates. And so when we underwrite a software company, we're really underwriting that install base. And, you know, what's happened in the public markets is partly due to the fact that interest rates have risen. So the discount rate that you're going to be discounting future cash flows back has become much more expensive. And partly just due to concerns uh, about a softer economy, growth expectations have also slowed. So you have slower growth rate expectations and you have a higher discount rate. And so valuations have been significantly impacted in that sector, as an example, you know, down 30% or so, maybe, maybe more in some cases. From our perspective, that's not what we underwrote. We didn't really underwrite that growth. Now, we indirectly benefited from some of the growth expectations in our loan-to-value. So when we typically invest in a software business, it's generally going to be around 35%. The debt quantum is going to be about 35% of the total value of the business that the sponsor is acquiring, maybe 40 in some cases. But the core to our our credit thesis is maintaining that installed base. And I can just use an example when, when you know, my firm, you know, AB Private Credit Investors, we moved off of our CRM tool. I won't say what we moved off of, but we moved on to a product called Bill Cloud, which is very specific to customized for private equity, private credit platforms. And, you know, the first thing I'd say is it was a real lift to do that. It was a lot of work to kind of make that migration and to right. build all that system into all of our work processes. And so, but having said that, it's a better solution for us. And today it would be the last thing that we that we would ever stop paying before we ultimately shut the lights down on our business. You know, one of the last things, if not the last thing, would be that software um, solution. And so there's tremendous resiliency in those, in that installed base. And that's what we underwrite. And so when we look at our SaaS businesses, you know, we continue to see very, very strong recurring revenues and continue to see that retention. And, you know, the other thing about software specifically is once you've installed the solution and you have a customer that's kind of on your system, the ultimate cost to maintain that customer is actually pretty low. And the incremental profitability of that customer is very, very high, typically 80, 90% software margins or contribution margins. And so in times like this as well, when, if, if the new sales opportunity is slowing down, You'll see, soft, you'll see sponsors mm-hmm. really take out the costs in the area of sales and marketing for those companies. And, and you can actually see them go to becoming more profitable in an environment like this because they're not investing heavily 
to drive growth. And, and we're seeing that in our portfolio as well. Are they sacrificing growth for lack of a better term, treading water while they wait to, for the yeah. economy to come back a little bit? They're either sacrificing growth or they're optimizing their marketing spend is what they would try to say for the opportunity that's in front of them. I'll give you another example though, because you know, in the past, we've done so much in software. We, we, when, I can recall a time when we were looking at a uh, take private for a software company. We had you know, one sponsor was really going to add about 50 to 75 salespeople to take growth from, call it 15% to 25, 30% in their models. And, and when they did that, they were going to show negative EBITDA. Because if, if you think about the economics of the software business, if I sign a, a software company up, a customer up, and it has 90% kind of renewal, you know, I kind of expect it on average they'll be with me for 10 years. But the day I put yeah. them on my, you know, kind of turn them on, I book one 120th of that revenue, if you will, you know, a, a month worth of, mm-hmm. of the lifetime value of that revenue. So I have a really a present value, an expected present value asset that I'm not allowed to capitalize, but I've invested 100% of the cost to acquire that, that, that in my sales and marketing period cost. And so if I'm growing rapidly, by definition, in most cases, unless you're very skilled, you're going to be losing money. So in this case, we were looking at a take private where the same, this particular company, one sponsor was going to step on the, the pedal and grow the business and invest in Salesforce. And I believe they yep. were showing us you know, maybe a ne- negative $5 million EBITDA company. The other sponsor was going to manage it for profitability. They were probably going to show 5 to 7 to 10% so a revenue growth, really replacing churn and growing a little bit off that. But they were going to cut heads out of the sales and marketing organization, not add them. The exact same company, we had one model that showed $25 million of EBITDA, one model that showed negative 5 because the, this headcount investment in growth is largely discretionary and you can dial it up or dial mm-hmm. it down based on okay. the opportunity that's in front of you. And so in a, in a softer economy where the opportunity isn't as strong, you're going to see um, a lot of sponsors, you know, reduce cash burn, reduce sales and marketing. And again, right. in many cases, right. you'll see right. companies right. that were previously burning are going to inflect profitability. Also, I've, I've read, and this has been more relative to the larger technology companies, the publicly traded ones where, during the years of 20 and 21, 22, they really increased headcount in a disproportionate ratio to their actual revenue. The ability to cut back in terms of headcount hasn't or shouldn't really impact their business as it's in some, some commentators view that as a right-sizing from an aggressive hiring time. So if they, in this example of this business that I was describing, when the sponsor was going to add the heads to drive growth, that was a discretionary investment that they made you know, so, so the, to, to drive growth. If I recall correctly, this still happened a number of years ago, so I hope I'm not mix, mixing up my deals. But if I recall correctly, they weren't actually right on their ability to achieve the growth. And so then they flipped it and they went back to an operating model that looked a lot more like the original sponsor, the other sponsor go. that was running it for profitability. Yeah. So you have the ability to dial it up and down in software. And software is unique and it's unique because once you have that installed customer, you don't have to go resell that customer again. You have to service them and you have to maintain their service right. quality, but you don't have to resell that customer again. As opposed to in your business, you couldn't do this. You have to bill hours and you have to go find a new client. And so you can't, you can't do this. This model doesn't work in the legal right. profession, for example. 
so I just want I want to pivot back to something you said earlier, which is that the private credit market has become highly competitive and implications for your ability to drive terms. I'm wondering how you're able to drive excess alpha in an environment in which the competition is will, will tend to drive down terms. Yeah. So, so first, again, I think what I tried to suggest is that I think many institutional investors, just given the the maturation of the of the sector, kind of view sponsor back direct lending as as yesterday's news, and 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 I I do believe in some cases they may outsmart themselves with that perspective. And what I mean by that is I do think there is still an opportunity within the private credit industry to generate highly attractive risk adjusted returns for investors. And if it was truly commoditized, we wouldn't be able to deliver the returns we've been able to deliver since 2008. Having said that. It is clear that there's more competition today than there was when I entered this business in in 2004 when I when I joined uh, Goldman Sachs. You know, uh, prior to launching a platform called, at Barclays and then subsequently the ABPCI platform. And so that is true. And 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 how do I think about that? And the way I think about it is, you know, back in 2004. Private credit investors added a lot of excess return at, at the individual asset level, and and what I mean by that it was by, you know, just being scrappy or being one of the few players out there to uniquely source an opportunity. Maybe because um, again, you know, you happen to have an industry edge, and there weren't as many players with that industry edge. You know, in 2004, there weren't many people lending in the software industry, for example. There are many people that more people that do it today. And, you know, maybe you could get a little, you know, 50, 100 basis points extra versus maybe what that would, that, that asset might actually, you know, intrinsically should, should trade for on a risk adjusted return basis. And I think today, my view is also documentation terms. You could really, you know, negotiate, you know, more attractive documentation terms back in 2004, 2005, 2006 than you, than you can today. Now, today, I think you still have the ability to add value at the asset level, but it's not as much as you used to be able to. So, so we are known, for, I hope, being with our sponsors being very fair in terms of the way we approach documentation, but we do focus on documents, and, and we, we like to think we, we are able to get a, a more balanced document than um, the, certainly a broadly syndicated loan document. But that that gap between the two is a lot narrower. The private credit doc today is a lot closer to the BSL doc than it used to be previously. Just as one example, so how do you how do you now continue to generate those returns and add value? Um, so you, you definitely do it at the asset level, and I'll come back to to how how you, how you do that. But more and more, I think you do it at what I refer to as the platform level. So, you know, and, and, and so I, I also refer to it internally as platform alpha. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, in the private credit in, in industry, you know, we're pursuing kind of a sanitized investing business. You know, is this the right risk adjusted return asset? Do you like this loan better than this particular opportunity, et cetera? But we're also running an operating business. And we're really running two types of businesses. We're running an operating business that kind of, when I think of visually a balance sheet, that is the kind of the, the left-hand side of the balance sheet driving the sourcing and the underwriting, the execution. And that's kind of the you know, driving value right. at the asset level. 
then we're also mm -hmm. managing the finance business. And how do we fund the right-hand side of our balance sheet? And how do you use that business model in terms of your funding to generate excess returns for your investors? And so from our perspective, you know, we have a philosophy where all of the vehicles that we manage are perpetual or evergreen in nature. That allows us to develop highly, highly diversified portfolios for our investors. So we're, you know, one of the value adds we think we provide investors is effectively almost broadly syndicated loan kind of CLO or loan mutual fund type diversity with the ability to capture the illiquidity premium that you can, you can achieve in the private credit space. And then because we have perpetual vehicles with no end of life and without getting into all the details, just in the interest of time, we have a very well-matched equity structure with the assets that we're, that we're also originating. And from a duration perspective, that allows our, us to finance ourselves principally in the structured finance market. So think middle market CLOs and um, the ABS or asset-backed market. And there's big advantages to that versus financing yourself in the bank market. So specifically, none of our vehicles, all of our, none of our vehicles have mark-to-market triggers in them. Moreover, they don't even have what I refer to as mark-to-performance triggers. So many bank facilities, they may not have a mark-to-market trigger for, for private illiquid loans, but if a particular loan starts to underperform, the lender yep. can require you to resize that, you know, kind of effectively have a margin call to resize the borrowing yep. base against that one individual loan, not irrespective of how the broader portfolio is performing. And the other key distinction is, you know, the, these structured finance uh, financing vehicles, these middle market CLOs, they're committed. They're long-term. They're six, seven, eight-year vehicles, as opposed to you know, bank facilities tend to be much shorter, and they tend to actually require the lender to approve each individual loan. You know, that affects you know, the, the, how this all plays out from a return perspective. We feel like we've set our business up where we're going to have access to capital in all market conditions. So we can talk about what's going on in the current market. Um, but the fact that we raise capital continuously on a quarterly basis, the fact that our, we don't have end-of-life vehicles, um, you know, we feel like we're always going to have capital to invest in, in all markets. We want to be selective in all markets and highly selective in this market from a credit perspective. But we also never want to put ourselves in a position where, a, where we are a forced seller in a bad market. And I think the right. way we've desi defined, de designed the equity funding combined with the way we finance our business, we feel we sleep really good at night, even in a, in a challenging environment like this, that we will never be a poor seller in a bad market. And importantly, we, will, we expect to have capacity to take advantage of dislocated markets. I should also say we feel like we get better financing terms than most of our competitors. There's a handful of our competitors that have similar philosophies on portfolio financing, but if you're if you're managing a, draw, a typical private equity style ramp up draw down wind down style fund, you just can't get the diversity to be competitive on the financing side. And not only do you can't get the diversity, you can't get the you, you won't benefit from the long term committed structures that we talked about. And so I do think it's a competitive advantage, and I do view it as creating value at the platform level yeah. um, by creating a better business model. Yeah, and that's that's a very unique structure. Yeah, there, there's there again. There we're not the only um, issuer of middle market CLOs. There's a handful. Um, I don't want to sure. give commercials to my competitors, but there are some good competitors out there that, that have done something similar. Um, but it, it but it is not the bulk of the market. And um, you know, yeah. I was at a conference recently one time, and somebody asked me, "Well, 
why do so many people, so many of your competitors still finance themselves in the bank market instead of the structured finance market? And, you know, my response, and I do believe this is the case, so I, I, I may be wrong, and, and, but my response is because they, they, they can't finance themselves in the structured finance market. Otherwise, they would. it's a better way to finance your business. It's safer for investors. You get better execution, in, in my opinion. Yeah. It, it's a better match. And, and the reason they can is because they don't have this perpetual structure and, and, and this technology yeah. that, that, that we have to manage such a so, – you know, we have thousands of investors uh, in our funds. We have a significant institutional um, uh, backing and partnerships, but we also have thousands of smaller investors, and, and it takes a significant sophisticated back office to manage that. Yeah, I think you were, correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think you were an early, you, you were one of the early uh, ones to tap into the retail high net worth individual market, which I think everyone's driving towards now uh, as best they can, and not just the, not just the institutional or, or uh, you know, the yeah, pension. Yeah, I, 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 I think of it a little bit differently, but, but I, so... We created this perpetual vehicle with this kind of unique, it's really, a, a, it combines the best elements, I think, of a drawdown style fund with the best elements mm-hmm. of a perpetual vehicle. And and, um, and we were one of the first to create this type of structure and certainly of scale. And we, we originally launched this platform in the high net worth, ultra high net worth kind of community. So mm-hmm. we don't do a lot in retail, what we would consider retail. This is all QP investors. Um, that yeah, we, yeah, we raise yeah, our yeah, capital yeah. in these in these vehicles, uh, but but it's not institutional. And part of the reason that we did that is we felt like, look, at the end of the day, we we did believe this was a better way for investors to access this access this asset class. We we ha- we were fortunate to have a white sheet of paper when we joined Alliance Bernstein and ask ourselves what worked post credit crisis or during the credit crisis, what didn't. How do we kind of uh, learn from that, and can can we design something that we think is better? Um, but at the same time, it was novel enough and unique enough that I don't think we would have gotten tremendous take up in the institutional market. You know, I think in the, in the right. ultra high net worth market, we had a better opportunity to engage one on one with investors through our financial advisors. And I think it's played out you know, really well for those investors. But today we're seeing a lot of interest from institutions in, in, in this particular yeah. offering. Um, for the reasons I noted, another reason why institutions like it is, you know, once they go through the process of underwriting a private credit manager, if they like the experience they're having with that manager, if they wanted to allocate more, they don't have to wait for another fund to be up and running. We close capital on a quarterly basis. And so that's a big Got efficiency it. for them. And yeah, I yeah. like to say, look, whenever you're, whenever you're ready, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, we're going to be ready. You know, we're open, uh, you know, whenever you're ready. And so, and so that's yep. an efficiency that we're starting to see institutional investors really embrace. And, and on the flip side, how do you address in this structure the illiquidity aspect of it? If somebody wants to, yep. uh, you know, draw out of that investment, how, sure. how do you address sure. that? Yeah. So, so our, our, um, and I'm focused on our, our private funds for a moment. So our structure is different than many. You, you, you're starting to hear now a lot of people talk about, hey, we have a perpetual fund or we want to launch a perpetual vehicle right. or, we, or we have a perpetual vehicle. But in many cases, these are vehicles that have, you know, in, in redemptions, uh, abilities for yep. investors to redeem. In some cases, they're trying to match up capital that's being raised on one hand with re- capital that's being redeemed on the other hand and try to 
you know, match up the timing of that. And, and we think that's pretty complicated. And we also think that can, yeah. you know, that can put pressure on the investors that are looking to stay in the vehicle. So we don't do that. The way our vehicle works is investors commit to us for a three-year period. We draw the capital as we have new opportunities in, during that three-year period. And so as we're adding assets, we're drawing capital, and then the investors are buying in you know, on the performing loans that we can easily value. We actually have a third party value our portfolio. They're buying into that performing loan, um, uh, you know, kind of asset diversified pool. But the existing investors that are already there are not getting economically diluted because new assets were brought into the the the, the structure when capital was called to fund those assets. Right. So that's on the on the funding side. After the three year commitment, investors have a really important option. They can either extend for a year or they can exit. And so if you think about that, if you're an investor, I can now stay fully invested with a one-year commitment um, without having to commit to a new fund, a new six, seven-year kind of typical kind of, mm. kind of committed vehicle mm. and hope that my commitment on fund two offsets my wind down on fund one and I stay fully invested. So now I can continue to commit on an annual basis or stay invested on an annual basis. If investors decide to exit, and this is the important part, so if an investor decides to exit, and they can do this in whole or in part, so they have flexibility to really manage their own individual liquidity needs, their own exit off-ramp, uh, as another way to describe it, or maybe said different, they can create their own private equity-style wind-down at the time of their choosing, not, not oh, at the time of an arbitrary fund close. So, so what yeah. happens is an investor that exits we have the ability to segregate you know, the assets attributable to their NAV. And as those loans are repaid in the ordinary course, those investors, you start getting you know, a, re, uh, a portion of the proceeds is paid down on the portfolio financing and a portion immediately is paid down, is paid to the investor as a, as a distribution. So the investor is able to maintain their leverage through the wind down as well, which is another unique feature of the way we've set this up. And so we think it's, a, and, and the, importantly, that structure does not, it doesn't put any pressure on the investors that are remaining in the fund. They're not mm -hmm. having to come up with, there's no cat. You know, there's no mismatch. It's almost perfectly match funded to the day assets and equity. If you think about mm -hmm. it, and then you can layer in long dated committed financing, six, seven, eight year financing, you know, in, in the structured finance market as a real, you know, to finance your portfolio. So we think it works. We think it's the right way for investors to get access to this asset class. We do it, uh, you know, on a broadly distributed, you know, diversified investor base for our co-mingled funds. We also have an unlevered fund that has the same structure, just no leverage, but, you know, gives the investor the same kind of perpetual dynamics, the yep. same ability to exit. Um, and so we, we think it's a good um, solution and it certainly is, it's helped us scale. And, and we think again, Going back to your original question, we do think it adds incremental return for our investors. So we, we think it is platform alpha is, is how we think about it. Yeah. And it gives a quasi liquidity exit option if, if, they, if, if the investor so wants. So that's pretty unique. So Brent, we, we, we covered a lot. And before we wrap up, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to cover or comment on since we can cover anything you want. No, no. I, look, I, I would just, again... Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Really appreciate what you're doing for the industry. Appreciate, obviously, what Proskauer 
the guidance and the relationship we've had over the years has been significant and highly valued. I do think there continues to be a really good opportunity in private credit. Certainly now there's a unique point in time, but over the long term, uh, I think private credit, again, there should be a core allocation that investors have in private credit, not unlike their core allocation they have to private equity. And then they can build around that certain either adjacencies or, 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 you know, extensions off of that core into different kind of unique, different types of investing strategies. But we're excited about the future and look forward to continuing to, to deliver for our investors. And if we do that, hopefully we'll continue to grow our business. Yeah, well, I think you should be excited. It's an exciting industry and there's a lot of money going into it. And there's a lot of opportunity. So I think you're well-placed. And so appreciate the talk. I learned a lot and we'll look forward to having you on perhaps next year, looking back and forward and seeing how things have developed. Appreciate it, Brent. Wonderful.